Welcome to the Long Ago Read Alouds podcast. We are continuing with More William by Richmond Crompton. Today we are reading Chapter 11, William and the Smuggler. Our disclaimer, due to the copyright date of this book, there will be stereotyping, which we would not condone nowadays. Please take the opportunity to talk to your child about the differences that existed then and now. William's family were going to the seaside for February. It was not an ideal month for the seaside, but William's father's doctor had ordered him a complete rest and change. We shall have to take William with us, you know, his wife had said as they discussed plans. Good heavens, groaned Mr. Brown. I thought it was to be a rest cure. Yes, but you know what he is, his wife urged. I daren't leave him with anyone, certainly not with Ethel. We shall have to take them both. Ethel will help with him. Ethel was William's grown-up sister. All right, agreed her husband finally. You can take all responsibility. I formally disown him from now till we get back. I don't care what trouble he lands you in. You know what he is and you deliberately take him away with me on a rescue. It can't be helped, dear, said his wife mildly. William was thrilled by the news. It was several years since he had been at the seaside. Will I be able to go swimming? It won't be too cold. Well, if I wrap up warm, will I be able to go swimming? Can I catch fishes? Are there lots of smugglers smuggling there? Well, I'm only asking. You needn't get mad. One afternoon, Mrs. Brown missed her best silver tray and searched the house high and low for it wildly, while dark suspicions of each servant in turn arose in her unusually unsuspicious breast. It was finally discovered in the garden. William had dug a large hole in one of the garden beds. Into the bottom of this he had fitted the tray and had lined the sides with bricks. He had then filled it with water and, taking off his shoes and stockings, stepped up and down his narrow pool. He was distinctly aggrieved by Mrs. Brown's reproaches. Well, I was practising paddling, ready for going to the seaside. I didn't mean to ray. You talk as if I meant to ruin your tray. I was only practising paddling. At last the day of departure arrived. William was instructed to put his things ready on his bed, and his mother would then come and pack for him. He summoned her proudly over the balusters after about twenty minutes. I've got everything ready, mother. Mrs. Brown ascended to his room. Upon his bed was a large pop gun, a football, a dormouse in a cage, a punch ball on a stand, a large box of curios, and a buckskin, which was his dearest possession, and had been presented to him by an uncle from South Africa. Mrs. Brown sat down weakly on a chair. "'You can't possibly take any of these things,' she said faintly but firmly. "'Well, you said put my things on the bed for you to pack, and I put them on the bed, and now you say—' "'I meant clothes. Oh, clothes!' scornfully. I never thought of clothes. Well, you can't take any of these things anyway. William hastily began to defend his collection of treasures. I must have a pop gun because you never know. There may be pirates and smugglers down there and you can kill a man with a pop gun if you get near enough and know the right place and I might need it. And I must have the football to play on the stands with and the punch ball to practice boxing on and I must have the dormouse because cause to feed him and I must have this box of things in this skin to show to folks I meet down at the seaside because they're interesting. 
but Mrs. Brown was firm, and William reluctantly yielded. In a moment of weakness, finding that his trunk was only three quarters filled by his things, she slipped in his beloved buckskin, while William himself put the pop gun inside when no one was looking. They had been unable to obtain a furnished house, so had to be content with a boarding house. Mr. Brown was eloquent on the subject. If you're deliberately turning that child loose into a boarding house full, presumably, of quiet, inoffensive people, you deserve all you get. It's nothing to do with me. I'm going to have a rescuer. I've disowned him. He can do as he likes. It can't be helped, dear, said Mrs. Brown mildly. Mr. Brown had engaged one of the huts on the beach, chiefly for William's use, and William proudly furnished its floor with a buckskin. It was killed by my uncle, he announced to the small crowd of children at the door, who had watched with interest his painstaking measuring of the floor in order to place his treasure in the exact centre. He killed it dead, just like this. William had never heard the story of the death of the buck, and therefore had invented one in which he had gradually come to confuse himself with his uncle in the role of hero. It was walking about, and I, uh, he met it. I hadn't got no gun, and it sprung on me, and I caught hold of its neck with one hand, and I broke off its horns with the other, and I knocked it over. And it got up and ran at me, at him, again, and I just tripped it up with my foot, and it fell over again, and then I just give it one big hit with my fist right on its head, and it killed it, and it died. There was an incredulous gasp. Then there came a clear, high voice from behind the crowd. Little boy, you are not telling the truth. William looked up into a thin, spectacled face. I wasn't telling it to you, he remarked, wholly unabashed. A little girl with dark curls took up the cudgels quite needlessly in William's defence. He's a very brave boy to do all that, she said indignantly. So don't you go saying things to him. Well, said William, flattered but modest, I didn't say I did it, did I? I said my uncle. Well, partly my uncle. Mr. Percival Jones looked down at him in righteous wrath. You're a very wicked little boy. I'll tell your father. Uh, I'll tell your sister. For Ethel was approaching in the distance and Mr. Percival Jones was in no way loath to converse with her. Mr. Percival Jones was a thin, pale, aesthetic, would-be poet who lived and thrived on the admiration of the elderly ladies of his boarding house and had done so for the past ten years. Once he had published a volume of poems at his own expense. He lived at the same boarding house as the Browns and had seen Ethel in the distance to meals. He had admired the red lights in her dark hair and the blue of her eyes and had even gone so far as to wonder whether she possessed the solid and enduring qualities which he would require of one whom in his mind he referred to as his future spouse. He began to walk down the beach with her. I should like to speak to you uh, about your brother, Miss Brown he began. If you can spare me the time, of course. I trust I do not uh, intrude or presume. He is a charming little man, but uh, I fear not voracious. May I accompany you a little on your way? I am uh, much attracted to your uh, family. I uh, should like to know you all better. I am deeply attached to your uh, little brother, but grieved to find that he does not uh, adhere to the truth in these statements. I... Uh, Miss Brown's eyes, blue eyes were dancing with merriment. Oh, don't you worry about William, 
she said. He's awful. It's much better just to leave him alone. Isn't the sea gorgeous today? They walked along the sands. Meanwhile, William had invited his small defender into his hut. You can look around, he said graciously. You see my skin, what I, he killed, haven't you? This is my gun. You put a cork in there and it comes out hard when you shoot it. It would kill anyone, impressively. If you did it near enough to them in the right place. And I've got a dormouse and a punch ball and a box of things and a football. But they wouldn't let me bring them, bitterly. It's a lovely skin, said the little girl. What's your name? William. What's yours? Peggy. Well, let's be on a desert island, shall we? And nothing to eat nor anything, shall we? Come on. She nodded eagerly. How lovely. They wandered out onto the promenade and among a large crowd of passers-by bemoaned the lonely emptiness of the island and scanned the horizon for a sail. In the far distance on the cliffs could be seen the figures of Mr Percival Jones and William's sister walking slowly away from the town. At last they turned towards the hut. We must find something to eat, said William firmly. We can't let ourselves starve to death. Shrimps? suggested Peggy cheerfully. We haven't got nets, said William. We couldn't save them from the wreck. Periwinkles? There aren't any on this island. I know, seaweed and we'll cook it. Oh, how lovely. He gathered up a handful of seaweed and they entered the hut, leaving a white handkerchief tied onto the door to attract the attention of any passing ship. The hut was provided with a gas ring and William, disregarding his family's express injunction, lit this and put on a saucepan filled with water and seaweed. We'll pretend it's a wood fire, he said. We couldn't make a real wood fire out on the prom. They'd stop us. So we'll pretend this is and we'll pretend we've saved a saucepan from the wreck. After a few minutes, he took off the pan and drew out a long green strand. You eat it first he said politely. The smell of it was not pleasant. Peggy drew back. Oh no, you first. No, you, said William nobly. You look hungrier than me. She bit off a piece, chewed it, shut her eyes and swallowed. Now you, she said, with a shade of indictiveness in her voice. You're not going to not have any. William took a mouthful and shivered. Oh, I think it's gone bad, he said critically. Peggy's rosy face had paled. I'm going home, she said suddenly. You can't go home on a desert island, said William severely. Well, I'm going to be rescued then, she said. I think I am too, said William. It was lunchtime when William arrived at the boarding house. Mr Percival Jones had moved his place so as to be nearer Ethel. He was now convinced that she was possessed of every virtue, his future spouse could need. He conversed brightly and incessantly during the meal. Mr. Brown grew restive. The man will drive me mad, he said afterwards, bleating away. What's he bleating about anyway? Can't you stop him bleating, Ethel? You seem to have influence. Bleat, 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 good Lord, and me here for a rescue. At this point, he was summoned to the telephone and returned distraught. It's an unknown female, he said. She says that a boy of the name of William from this boarding house has made a little girl sick by forcing her to eat seaweed. She says it's brutal. Does anyone know I'm here for a rescue? Where is the boy? Good heavens, where is the boy? 
But William, like Peggy, had retired from the world for a space. He returned later on in the afternoon, looking pale and chastened. He bore the reproaches of his family in stately silence. Mr. Percival Jones was in great evidence in the drawing room. And soon, er, soon the spring will be with us once more, he was saying in his high-pitched voice as he leant back in his chair and joined the tips of his fingers together. The spring, ah, oh, the spring. I have a, a little effort I uh, compose on uh, the coming of the spring. I will uh, read to you sometime if you will uh, be kind enough to uh, criticise uh, impartially. Criticise, they chorused. It will be above criticism. Oh, do read it to us, Mr. Jones. I will uh, this evening. His eyes wandered to the door, hoping and longing for his beloved's entrance. But Ethel was with her father at a matinee at the Winter Gardens, and he looked and longed in vain. In spite of this, however, the springs of his eloquence did not run dry, and he held forth ceaselessly to his little circle of admirers. The simple, ah, oh, pleasures of nature. How few of us, alas, have the uh, gift of appreciating them rightly. This uh, little seaside hamlet with its uh, sea, its uh, promenade, its uh, winter gardens, how beautiful it is. How few appreciate it rightly. Here William entered and Mr. Percival Jones broke off abruptly. He disliked William. Ah, here comes our little friend. He looks pale. Remorse, my young friend. Ah, beware of untruthfulness. Beware of the beginnings of a life of lies and deception. He laid a hand on William's head and cold shivers ran down William's spine. Be good, sweet child, and let who will be clever, as the poet says. There was murder in William's heart. At that minute, Ethel entered. No, she snapped. I sat next to a man who smelt of bad tobacco. I hate men who smoke bad tobacco. Mr. Jones assumed an expression of intense piety. I may boast, he said sanctimoniously, that I have never thus soiled my lips with drink or smoke. There was an approving murmur from the occupants of the drawing room. William had met his father in the passage outside the drawing room. Mr. Brown was wearing a hunted expression. Can I go into the drawing room? He said bitterly. Or is he bleating away in there? They listened. From the drawing room came the sound of a high-pitched voice. Mr. Brown groaned. Good Lord, he moaned. And I'm here for a rescue. And he comes bleating into every room in the house. Is the smoking room safe? Does he smoke? Mr. Percival Jones was feeling slightly troubled in his usually peaceful conscience. He could honestly say that he had never smoked. He could honestly say that he had never drank. But in his bedroom reposed two bottles of brandy purchased at the advice of an aunt in case of emergencies. In his bedroom also was a box of cigars that he had bought for a cousin's birthday gift, but which his conscience had finally forbidden to present. He decided to consign these two emblems of vice to the waves that very evening. Meanwhile, William had returned to the hut and was composing a tale of smugglers by the light of a candle. He was much intrigued by his subject. He wrote fast in an illegible hand in great sloping lines, his brows frowning, his tongue protruding from his mouth, as it always did in moments of mental strain. 
His sympathies wavered between the smugglers and the representatives of law and order. His orthography was the despair of his teachers. Ho, says Dick Savage, he wrote. Ho, gadzooks, roll in the bottles of beer up to the beach. Fill your pockets with a backy from the boat. Quick now, gadzooks, methinks we are observed. He glared round in the darkness. In less time than what it takes to write this, he was surrounded by policemen and stood proud and defiant in the light of their electric torches, what they had wiped quick as lightning from their bosoms. Surrender, cried one, holding a gun at his brain and drawn sword at his heart. Surrender or die. Never, said Dick Savage, throwing back his head, proud and defiant. Never. Do to me what you will, you dirty dogs. I will never surrender. Sooner will I die. One cruel brute hit him a blow on the lips and he sprang back, snarling with rage. In less time than what it takes to write this, he had sprang at his torturer's throat and his teeth met it in one mighty bite. His torturer dropped dead and died lifeless at his feet. Ho! cried Dick Savage, throwing back his head, proud and defiant again. So dies any of you what insults my proud manhood. I will meet my teeth in your throats. For a minute they stood trembling, then one, bolder than the rest, leapt forward and tied Dick Savage's hands with rope behind his back. Another took from his pockets bottles of beer and tobacco in large quantities. Ho! they cried, exulting. Ho! Dick Savage, the smuggler, caught at last. Dick Savage gave one proud and defiant laugh, and bringing his tied hands over his head, he bit the rope with one mighty bite. Ho, ho, he cried, throwing back his proud head. Ho, ho, you dirty dogs. Then draining to the dregs a large bottle of poison he had concealed in his bosom, he fell dead and lifeless at their feet. There was a timid knock at the door, and William, scowling impatiently, rose to open it. What do you want? he said curtly. A little voice answered from the dusk. It's me, Peggy. I've come to see how you are, William. They don't know I've come. I was awful sick after that seaweed this morning, William. William looked at her with a superior frown. Go away, he said. I'm busy. What are you doing? She said, poking her little curly head into the doorway. I'm writing a tale. She clasped her hands. Oh, how lovely. Oh, William, do read it to me. I love it. Mollified, he opened the door and she took her seat on his buckskin on the floor. And William sat by the candle, clearing his throat for a minute before he began. During the reading, she never took her eyes off him. At the end, she drew a deep breath. Oh, William, it's beautiful. William, are there smugglers now? Oh, yes, millions, he said carelessly. Here? Of course there are. She went to the door and looked out at the dusk. I'd love to see one. What do they smuggle, William? He came and joined her at the door, walking with a slight swagger, as became a man of literary fame. Oh, beer and cigars and things, millions of them. A furtive figure was passing the door, casting suspicious glances to left and right. He held his coat tightly round him, clasping something inside it. I expect that's one, said William casually. They watched the figure out of sight. Suddenly William's eyes shone. Let's stalk him and catch him, he said excitedly. Come on, let's take some weapons. He seized his pop gun from a corner. You take, he looked round the room, you take the waste paper basket to put over his head and, and pin down his arms and something to tie him up. 
I know, the skin I, he, shot in Africa. You could tie its paws in front of him. Come on, let's catch him smuggling. He stepped boldly out into the dusk with his pop gun, followed by the blindly obedient Peggy, carrying the waste paper basket in one hand and the skin in the other. Mr Percival Jones was making quite a little ceremony of consigning his brandy and cigars to the waves. He had composed a little effort upon it which began. O oh, deeps receive these objects vile, which never more mine eyes shall soil. He went down to the edge of the sea, and taking a bottle in each hand, held them out at arm's length, while he began in his high-pitched voice. O oh, deeps receive these. He stopped. A small boy stood beside him, holding out at him the point of what, in the semi-darkness, Mr. Jones took to be a loaded rifle. William mistook his action in holding out the bottles. "'It's no good trying to drink it up,' he said severely. "'We caught ye smuggling.' Mr. Percival Jones laughed nervously. "'My little man!' he said. That's a very dangerous thing for you to have. Suppose you hand it over to me now like a good little chap. William recognised his voice. Fancy you being a smuggler all the time, he said with righteous indignation in his voice. Take that away, that nasty little boy. That gun, please, now, pleaded his captive plaintively. You are, don't understand it. It, uh, it might go off. William was not a boy to indulge in half measures. He meant to carry the matter off with a high hand. I'll shoot you dead, he said dramatically, if you don't do just what I tell you. Mr Percival Jones wiped the perspiration from his brow. Where did you get that rifle, little boy? He asked in a voice he strove to make playful. Is it, ah, is it uh, loaded? It's unwise, little boy, most unwise. Give it to me. Give it to me to take care of. It might go off, you know. William moved the muzzle of, of his weapon, and Mr Percival Jones shuddered from head to foot. William was a brave boy, but he had experienced a moment of cold terror when first he had approached his captive. The first note of the quavering, high-pitched voice had, however, reassured him. He instantly knew himself to be the better man. His captive's obvious terror of his pop-gun almost persuaded him that he held in his hands some formidable death-dealing instrument. As a matter of fact, Mr Percival Jones was temperamentally an abject coward. "'You walk up to the seats,' commanded William. "'I've took you prisoner for smuggling, and I now just walk up to the seats.' Mr. Percival Jones obeyed with alacrity. Don't oppress anything, little boy, he pleaded as he went. It uh, might go off by accident. You might do uh, untold damage. Peggy, armed with a waste paper basket and the skin, followed open-mouthed. At the seat, William paused. Peggy, you put the basket over his head and pin his arms down, case he struggles, and tie the skin while I shot round him, case he struggles. Peggy stood upon the seat and obeyed. Their victim made no protest. He seemed to himself to be in some horrible dream. The only thing of which he was conscious was the dimly descried weapon that William held out at him in the darkness. He was hardly aware of the waste paper basket thrust over his head. He watched William anxiously through the basket work. Be careful, he murmured. Be careful, boy. He hardly felt the skin which was fastened tightly round his unresisting form by Peggy, the tail tied to one front paw. Unconsciously, he still clasped the bottle of brandy in each arm. Then came the irate summons of Peggy's nurse through the dusk. 
Oh, William, she said, panting with excitement. I don't want to leave you. Oh, William, he might kill you. You go on. I'm all right, he said with conscious valour. He can't do nothing because I've got a gun and I can shoot him dead. Mr Percival Jones shuddered afresh. And he's all tied up and I took him prisoner and I'm going to take him home. Oh, William, you are brave, she whispered in the darkness as she flitted away to her nurse. William blushed with pride and embarrassment. Mr Percival Jones was convinced that he had to deal with a youthful lunatic, armed with a dangerous weapon, and was anxious only to humour him till the time of danger was over and he could be placed under proper restraint. Unconscious of his peculiar appearance, he walked before his captor, casting proprietary glances behind him. It's all right, little boy, he said soothingly. Quite all right. I'm uh, your friend. Don't uh, get annoyed, little boy. Don't, uh, don't get annoyed. Won't you put your gun down, little man? Won't you let me carry it for you? William walked behind, still pointing his pop gun. I took you prisoner for smuggling, he repeated doggedly. I'm taking you home. You're my prisoner. I've took you. They met no one on the road, though Mr Percival Jones threw longing glances around, ready to appeal to any passerby for rescue. He was afraid to raise his voice in case it should rouse his youthful captor to murder. He saw with joy the gate of his boarding house and hastened up the walk and up the stairs. The drawing room door was open. There was help and assistance. There was protection against this strange persecution. He entered, followed closely by William. It was about the time he had promised to read his little effort on the coming of spring to a circle of admirers. A group of elderly ladies sat round the fire awaiting him. Ethel was writing. They turned as he entered and a gasp of horror and incredulous dismay went up. It was that gasp that called him to a realisation of the fact that he was wearing a waste paper basket over his head and shoulders and that a mangy fur rug was tied round his arms. Mr Jones, they gasped. He gave a wrench to his shoulders and the rug fell to the floor, revealing a bottle of brandy clasped in either arm. Mr Jones, they repeated. I caught him smuggling said William proudly. I caught him smuggling beer by the sea and he was drinking those two bottles he'd smuggled and he'd had thousands and thousands of cigars all over him and I caught him and he's a smuggler and I brought him up here with my gun. He's a smuggler and I took him prisoner. Mr Jones, red and angry, his hair awry, glared through the wickerwork of his basket. He moistened his lips. This is an outrage, he spluttered. Horrified elderly eyes stared at the incriminating bottles. He was drinking them by the sea, said William. Mr Jones, they chorused again. He flung off his waste paper basket and turned upon the proprietress of the establishment who stood by the door. I will not brook such treatment, he stammered in fury. I leave your roof tonight. I am outraged, humiliated. I, I disdain to explain. I leave your roof tonight. Mr. Jones, they said once more. Mr. Jones, still clasping his bottles, withdrew, pausing to glare at William on his way. You wicked boy, you wicked little untruthful boy, he said. William looked after him. He's my prisoner and they've let him go, 
he said aggrievedly. Ten minutes later, he wandered into the smoking room. Mr. Brown sat miserably in a chair by a dying fire beneath a poor light. Is he still bleating there? he said. Is this still the only corner where I can be sure of keeping my sanity? Is he reading his beastly poetry upstairs? Is he... He's going, said William moodily. He's going before dinner. They've sent for his cab. He's mad because I said he was a smuggler. He was a smuggler because I saw him doing it and I took him prisoner and he got mad and he's going. And they're mad at me because I took him prisoner. You'd think they'd be glad at me catching smugglers, but they're not, bitterly. And mother says she'll tell you and you'll be mad too and... Mr. Brown raised his hand. One minute, my son, he said. Your story is confused. Do I understand that Mr. Jones is going and that you are the cause of his departure? Yes, because he got mad because I said he was a smuggler and he was a smuggler and they're mad at me now and... Mr. Brown laid a hand on his son's shoulder. There are moments, William, he said, when I feel almost affectionate towards you.